Hey everybody, it's Justin Shackle welcoming you into episode 7 of Towing the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn. David's here, James Smythe is here, the Cy Young Awards are here. It's Cy Young Week, David, you're pretty familiar with that, so we have that on our episode here today, but also we're talking to someone very, very special. Yeah, I mean, Joe Torrey is uh, a Hall of Fame person, much less a Hall of Fame manager. I mean, he had a great playing career. Over 2,300 career hits. I think James Smythe can put that into perspective for us a little better. But maybe the best combination of a, of, a, of a really great player and a really great manager and a really great broadcaster, too. He had an excellent broadcasting career. And then finishing, he's finishing up his career on the Major League Baseball side of things. He dealt with the umpires, his special assistant to the commissioner. So I, it's hard for me to think about one guy that encompasses so many different skill sets in the history of baseball, in my mind, I think Joe Torrey's at the, at or near the top of that list. Yeah. And he has a way with words. I always thought about that. It always stood out to me, especially when he was the manager of the Yankees talking with the media all the time and really got a sense of like the day-to-day grind that a manager has to go through, at least in, in the town of New York, that market where you do your pregame, your postgame, but it's with a lot, it's with a gaggle of reporters every single time. That's really what stood out to me about his, his way with words. So when you hear stories from him, they, they hit different a little. And it's, uh, it, was, it was awesome to have him on. He touched on a, a ton of topics. And something, I mean, James, we go through the longevity of what David was talking about. Player, manager, union rep, or, you know, players union rep, working in the front and in, uh, as a broadcaster and, at one point, potentially interviewing for GM jobs, right? Front office positions, then working into the league's office. So he's really has seen it all. But as a uh, as a baseball lifer, what stands out to you about Joe Torre? Well, Conan touched on it briefly. I think the he's someone who is obviously no Hall of Fame manager inducted into 2014. He is fifth on the all-time list in wins. He's fourth all time with four world series championships only behind Joe McCarthy and Casey Stengel with seven. Connie Mack had five. Walter Olson also had four decorated manager. We all know that up and down. He had a really underrated playing career. Um, He was a gold glove catcher. And then after moving off the position to third base, he wins the 1971 NL MVP in his first season after the position change and like Coney said, he's over 2,300 hits, over 250 home runs. And uh, to get into a, a newer metric, uh, baseball reference war, uh, he's at 57, which is right around the Hall of Fame borderline. So you have someone who is a, you know, more or less a borderline uh, playing career as, as a, at a Hall of Fame level, and then a Hall of Fame managerial career that really pushes him over the top. Yeah, did it all. 1971 MVP, gold glove winner, all-star. And, and we talk about gold gloves it was a guy that really didn't have a steady position over the course of his career. So we talk a lot about that uh, with Joe coming up in the show, but guys, this is Cy Young week. Just almost lost my headphones there. Cy Young week. The awards are coming out. We know the finalists uh, national and American national league and American league awards coming out on this Wednesday. And I wanted to get a little preview in, we should discuss these finalists. So we we look at the American League, which I think we're kind of in agreement here. We're all aligned that it's a little bit more clear on who has an edge 
in the Cy Young race in the American League. The three finalists that were announced, Robbie Ray, Garrett Cole, and Lance Lynn. And in the National League, you have Max Scherzer, Corbin Burns, and Zach Wheeler. Six pitchers that had terrific seasons. A little bit different in their own regard when you look at certain measurements, certain stats that people may weigh more than others. And consistency, I think, is a big one in there as well. So as we go through this and take a look and then eventually, you know, what are we with? We don't have our own predictions, right? Where where you see this Cy Young race winding up on Wednesday, who do you think is going to be voted the winner? Let's start in the American League because, like I said, I think it's easier to come to a conclusion here. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm not sure. This is why we uh, we, we discuss things like this. But we have Robbie Ray, Garrett Cole, Lance Lynn. First of all, when you heard those finalists, did any name kind of jump out at you as a surprise, David? Not especially, no. I, you know, I think Lance Lynn had a better year than people realize, unless you were following closely. And certainly he was really strong in the middle part of the year. Now, when you're looking at the American League side, it's really about how you finish. And I think that was the difference and probably will be the difference. It'll give Robbie Ray maybe a little bit of an edge, even though his last start wasn't so great either. That was a big start for the Toronto Blue Jays against the Yankees, ironically. I think Garrett Cole... Uh, and his hamstring issues down the stretch really hurt him. He had to miss a little bit of time at the, at the towards the end of the season. And then, you know, I, now we know Scott Boris's agent talks about, you know, that he really kind of was fatigued with that hamstring issue and, and he wasn't quite the same pitcher. So I think that hurt his chances down the stretch in, in terms of how you finish. So you know, I, I think it's closer than people think, but Robbie Ray probably does have a little bit of the advantage because of, the quantitative numbers, you know, the innings and the strikeouts and the total numbers there give him a little bit of an edge in my mind. Yeah, I agree. I think it's it's pretty clearly Ray um, to lead the American League in ERA at 2.84 and in innings pitched, 193 and a third. Um, I think that they, I think that carries the day for him. Um, and with it being, it looked like it was going to be a three horse race down the stretch. Uh, Coney mentioned the, the hamstring injury and, and some shaky starts from Cole, but also Lynn missing some time down the stretch. He missed a few starts, and I think that cost him a bit there. But um, three fantastic seasons. Um, as far as you know, writers filling out a five-man ballot, um, you'll, I'm sure we'll see plenty of love for Nathan Avaldi, uh, Lance McCullers Jr., Carlos Rodon, all uh, had fantastic seasons. One guy I'm a little interested in seeing and as someone, if I was a voter, I would have thrown, uh, I would have locked in my fifth place vote either way, even if he wasn't a top five pitcher in the league, maybe more top 10 or whatever. Um, Shohei Otani, in order in balancing the responsibilities of being the ace of a staff and being an elite pitcher with also being a top two or three hitter in the league, um, unprecedented. And I think that even if he wasn't a top five pitcher, I think that's worthy of recognition in, in its own small way. It's a great point. The degree of difficulty that he had to pitch under is hard to kind of quantify, right? Put a number on what Otani did because we'd never seen it before. It's hard to quantify just being dependent on, right? Like being a, de- a dependent for your teammates. And I think that's something that you weigh in when you look at the body of work, maybe go through the game logs and start by start and, you know, see when w- what the context was around each game, especially late in the season. But both of you, what do you 
focus on the most when you're when you're trying to decide who is most deserving for an award like this? I know, look, we all love information, but if you had to pick three, right? If you had to pick the three most important stat categories, what are they for each of you? You know, I, I, for me, you know, and then I'll defer to James because we work together in the, on the S network quite a bit. And we have these conversations a lot about value and, and how to, how to, how to come up with value, how to value certain pitchers uh, and their performances and whether it's a rate stat or accounting stat makes a difference for me. But at, you know, at the end of the day, there's, there's still a little bit of old school in me. So, you know, somebody that's out there for over 200 innings, somebody who's consistent, that, that gives you that kind of workload is so valuable in today's game because it's a rarity. What Adam Wainwright did for the Cardinals this year is such a rarity. Now he had a lot of help because he had five gold glovers behind him. But yeah, if you're getting up, if, if you're getting up in those kind of numbers on, on the counting stats, uh, you know, to, to me, it, it kind of crystallizes the argument on the National League side, right? With, with Corbin Burns at only about 160, 170 innings, or or Zach Wheeler that, that pitched a lot more innings than that, got up over 200 innings. So, yeah, that, that still means something to me. But uh, you know, ERA plus, you know, the more information, the better for me. Um, I like ERA plus because it, it, it factors in, you know, park adjusted factors. Um, there's other variables involved and. And just what you did in your ballpark against the lineups you faced. No, let's have a little more context and peel back the layers a little bit and see what you really did compared to the league average or compared to what everybody else is doing and what type of ballpark you pitched in and what the ballpark factors were in the park that was your home park or the, you know, certainly uh, the park you pitched the most of your starts in. Well, I think the two, the two main ones for me are, you know, keeping it simple ERA and innings pitched. Um, the, the, the next step is you know, would be something like war um, because I think what that does well is that it, it, it takes both into account. So the, if you're looking at say baseball reference war runs allowed and innings pitched are the two primary components that'll get you most of the way there. And then you start to see the little things on the edges. So Coney mentioned DRA plus that makes an adjustment for ballpark. So does war. War will also adjust for the quality of the opposing lineups you faced. So looking at it um, in the American League race, Ray and Cole get a little bit of an edge over Lynn because the lineups that they were facing in the American League East, more games against the Rays, more games against the Red Sox, Cole facing the Blue Jays, what have you, gets a little bit of an edge over Lynn. Park factors, like Coney mentioned. Pitching in a tougher ballpark, you're going to get a boost. Pitching in a more pitcher-friendly ballpark, you won't you you'll get knocked down a little bit. Uh, it also takes into account the quality of a de- of your defense. So, Coney mentioned Wainwright; he benefits from uh, from having a high-quality defense. Another guy like maybe Wheeler, he'll get a boost for having a subpar defense behind him. So, all of these things go into the pot, and I think that gives you a good picture of all the other factors around runs allowed, innings. And something like war will kind of swirl all that together and, and give you a good idea of, of the value, even if you don't want to parse it too fine because, you know, 4.3 versus 4.1 is it's, it's almost a negligible difference when you're getting down to decimal points like that. Are we all on the same page here though? Do we, do we think Robbie Ray will take this home? I think so. 
I think he has the edge. Yeah, if you're okay. if you're uh, looking at the betting lines, he, he you know as James said, you know lowest ERA, most innings. That's a pretty pretty good foundation to build on right there when you when you're trying to build a case for Cy Young. Yeah, you match him up with with Garrett Cole and looking at the stats right here. There's a lot of one two Ray Cole right, but for the overwhelming majority, you have Robbie Ray and some of those key stats that we're talking about here being the top dog. So I mean, game started, he's he's Tops in the league there. ERA plus, the best in the American League. Uh, innings pitched, something that I really concentrate on. James mentioned that he did as well. And then whip, which is something that I like to focus on too. It, it measures how well you're doing at keeping the opponent off the base paths, right? Pretty important. Um, but but then you look at the the war as well. He's first there, uh, especially in, in B-War. So uh, some... Career numbers for Robbie Ray, certainly 11 and a half strikeouts per nine jumps out at you. But also what we were talking about, right? The dependability factor. He rose to the top of the Blue Jays starting rotation for a team that also didn't have much in terms of starting pitching, didn't have a lot of uh, the equal amount of depth after Ray. I think that says a lot. I think the amount of innings that he worked says a lot everyone's dealing with the increased workload from 20 to 2020 to 2021 for him. It, it skyrocketed obviously, but he was able to take the ball, make 32 starts that led the league as well. And the dependability factor, when you match that with some of these numbers that we're talking about, the raw stats, I think it's uh, an easy case for Robbie Ray, maybe, you know, him and, and a guy like Cole pretty close together. But when you have Ray leading in almost every other category and, Garrett's like second in all of them. I mean, there's not so much, uh, there's only so much you can try to quibble about. No, it's a great point. If you want to keep peeling back layers, there's so many you can go to, right? I mean, you could talk about expected stats. Now with StatCast, you can talk about the quality of contact. How good was he at controlling contact rates? His exit velocity? What was his expected batting average? I mean, we could go on and on and on. But the thing that really stands out about Robbie Ray is that he just suddenly started throwing strikes, He started filling up the strike zone. And that was always the question with Robbie Ray was great stuff, electric slider, but he's all over the place. His command was never really there, kind of spotty early in his career, on again, off again. And then all of a sudden, for whatever reasons, maybe we can get him on this podcast at some point and talk about the influence that Randy Johnson had on him, supposedly a conversation they had about the way you land, a mechanical adjustment that Robbie Ray made that allowed, almost seemingly overnight, allowed him to start filling up the strike zone. And not only that, being dominant in the strike zone and attacking and throwing more strikes than he ever has probably in his life. All right, yeah, so he had an 11% walk rate in his career before 2021. And that went from 11% down under 7% to around 65 while also maintaining an elite strikeout rate that he, he was always great at striking guys out, but the control was there. The command was there and he, he made the walks go away. And next thing you know, he's presumably a Cy Young winner. Yeah. The walk rate plunge the, like you said, the whiff rates always been there. It went up maybe a little tick higher from, from the seasons past, at least in recent memory. What's major league average on walk rate, like in around nine ish. It's it's around, it's in the eights. Uh, yeah. usually so um so he was above, half, so. above average control overnight seemingly and an right. elite strikeout rate too right that, that's a Cy Young award a winner right there a little trickier in the National League not as clear cut and I think it kind of just depends on what you are preferring 
you know, what, what you pay most uh, close attention to the most Max Scherzer, Corbin Burns and Zach Wheeler. When you see those three, you bunch them up together and try to make a decision. What are you focused on the most, David? Wow. You know, consistency throughout the whole year. Were you there uh, month in and month out throughout over 30 starts? You know, Max Scherzer really made a bid when he went to the Dodgers. Boy, he was phenomenal. It seemed like he he took it to another level and, and seemingly, you know, it was like a springboard to him to get back into the race, the Cy Young race and, and make a bid for another one. I mean, this is a, a Hall of Fame career that, that he's got going right now, but I, I just think that Zach Wheeler flew under the radar all year long, was probably the most consistent pitcher. Uh, strikeouts, innings pitched. You, know, you can make a really strong case for the overall body of work to go to Zach Wheeler, but Corbin Burns was so electric with that cutter, almost unhittable. Uh, there, were, there were parts of the season where he went start to start and just made major league hitters look silly, look like minor league hitters at times. So you can make a, you can make a unique argument for all three of those guys. Uh, but for me, at the end of the day, the guy who was the most consistent was Zach Wheeler in Philly. It's funny. I, I, yeah, I think the NL is totally wide open, but I agree with, with the Wheeler pick because he has the edge in innings and he kind of balances it all. So what I love about the NL race is that the guys with the biggest edge in innings, like Wheeler and someone who just missed the top three, Walker Bueller, they're over 200 innings. The guys like Corbin Burns and Max Scherzer, they have them beat in ERA, but with 20, 30, 40 fewer innings. So then the, that's what a great um, conundrum to balance. You know, who, who do we value more? Where does the, extra innings offset the, you know, the, the higher ERA and you balance it all out. And then, so something like uh, baseball reference war, it has Wheeler 7.6 and then uh, Scherzer 6.0 burns 5.6 Bueller on the outside, looking in at 6.7. They're all, they all had great seasons, but I think Wheeler combines the two, he has a two seven eight ERA, the highest of the group, but I think pitching, 30 more innings than Scherzer and 40 more innings than Burns kind of gives him the nod there. But Corbin Burns, he pitched enough innings to qualify for the ERA uh, leaderboards. He was at 167. And uh, I know we didn't mention FIP very much during, uh, during our, our what stats do you look out section, but fielding independent pitching, which is on the same scale as ERA, he had a 2.43 ERA, but a 1.63 fielding independent pitching, which is the second lowest by a qualifier in the expansion era since 1961. Only 1999 Pedro was better. Uh, so Burns, the amazing combination of a lot of strikeouts, not a lot of walks, very few home runs. So strikeouts, walks, I mean, fielder independent pitching, right? Just uh, strikeouts, walks, and home runs, right? And hit batters. Yeah. yeah. That, that's set on the same scale as ERA, so – what a remarkable year with that low of a FIP. And then singularly, maybe the most dominant pitch, Corbin Burns' cutter. And we're going to have a feature like that on one of our future podcasts about let's go shopping, right? It's, it's Christmas time or it's Hanukkah time. It's time for gifts. Let's go shopping and pick out, you know, draft, draft to your favorite pitch or your, the most dominant pitch 
from the 2021 season, the number one pick in that draft might be Corbin Burns' cutter. Might be the first pick of that draft. And we'll see. We'll see. I'll, I'll, I'll see what you guys pick when we get to that podcast on down the road. Yeah, I'm thinking about that for, you know, the coming weeks here. Should we put a salary cap on that? No. Make it a little more interesting? No? Free no. for all. No, I am anti-salary cap. That it goes, <laughs> goes against my DNA. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Free. Hey, it's the holiday spirit. Yes. Spend, baby. Yeah, um, yeah, just, yeah. There's no budgets here. There's just quality of pitch. You get to pick, you know, but you get one pick. And, uh, you know, we'll come up with a draft order. But we can bring it to our, to our audience, too, if, if people want to get into this. But it's an interesting time of the season to start thinking about the nastiest pitches of the year. You know, Zach Wheeler. Had a couple of his fastball yeah. in, in some rankings was one of the most valuable fastballs in the league, certainly in, in the National League. I think it was a, a minus 17 in terms of ranking on the run value, which was the highest ranked fastball. It was Zach Wheeler's fastball. And, and that's based on the outcome of the pitch and how well that pitch uh, succeeded for him this year. It was the toughest forcing fastball to hit this year was Zach Wheeler's. Just looking over these stats for, for these, and, and in case – you know, fielding independent pitching, it, it takes plays involving the uh, the defense out of the equation. But what James was talking about, there's always like that one place where these three pitchers did such an amazing job that may offset some of their shortcomings. And you look at fit for Burns, you look at the strikeout rate, the amount, the total. It was, you know, second with whip. For me, he only gave up seven home runs, seven homers in 167 innings of work. So I look at something like that, that pops out of my head. So I'm like, okay, well, then he, you know, I got to raise him back up a notch. And as they, you know, try and filter all the way to the top here. And you just look at outlier stats with these three. There's always like that one or two that is so significant that does a great job explaining how well of a job they did but David like you mentioned Zach Wheeler like workhorse mode in 2021 right he gets I think that gets a lot of credit as well he finished really strong pretty consistent he had a 147 over his last five starts that was after he had a 481 ERA in six starts in August but something that I try to count up here how many uh starts and like we're talking about uh innings pitch bulking up in that area how many starts were at least six innings? So for Zach Wheeler, it was 32 starts, 27 of them were at least six innings. That's big for me. For, for Corbin Burns, 20 of his 28 starts were at least six innings. And of that, 12 of 20 were six innings minimum. And then Max Scherzer, 20 of his 30 starts were at least six innings. And then you look at the consistency of each pitcher, right? Who kind of was even keeled? Well, then... Corbin Burns kind of pulls back up a, a little bit on top here because he was pr- probably the most consistent out of all of them. He never had a month to month ERA higher than 3.22. So it makes it really tricky because it's neck and neck, but in very, for, de- for very different reasons with each guy. Yeah. That, that's the beauty of these discussions because, you know, there's so much information out there that you can get as much as you want and put the weight on it according to your opinion. You know, do you, do you value, 200 innings pitched, or do you value the quality numbers of Corbin Burns? You know, it's up to you. Uh, and certainly the writers are more diverse now than ever in their thinking. So uh, yeah, it's, it's, there's all, so many different ways to slice and dice it. I mean, you can get into 
win probability added if you want, uh, base outrun saved. I mean, there's so many different metrics you can go to for tiebreakers. But to me, at the end of the day, you know, when you're out there, like you just said, in today's game, starting pitchers getting deep into a game is such a rarity that if you can do that, you're, you're worth your weight in gold in my mind. And uh, Zach Wheeler was that guy in the National League, you know, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and there's no real right or wrong to it. I like how you said that it's really up to each individual person to say what do they value more, this or that. And I think what we we both went with Wheeler. It wouldn't surprise me if he came in third. We know what the top three is in some order, but I wouldn't be surprised if there was some funkiness in the balloting when we when we get it on Wednesday, either it's so scattered that maybe the, the guy who wins doesn't have the most first place votes or the winner isn't listed on every ballot or something like that. I think it's so wide open between the three finalists who are announces these were the guys who finished in the top three, but also Bueller, who was fourth. Kevin Gaussman had a fantastic year. Julio Urias had a great year. And I think we're going to Adam Wainwright, a uh, friend yeah. of the show. Uh, I think we're going to see very um, scattered balloting in the National League, whereas the American League might be a little more mostly Ray than mostly Cole than mostly Lynn, one, two, three. That's a great point. Uh, There was there's no doubt, you know, Justin, you know, talking about Burns, there was a stretch this year where Corbin Burns is on a different level than anybody else in the game. And there there, was it enough is the question, the quantitatively Mm -hmm. speaking, did he have enough body of work? Uh, some people will say yes, but there's no doubt in my mind, Justin, that there was a six-week stretch there, maybe even a little longer, two-month stretch where he got in a groove, and every time you watched him pitch, he was unhittable. He really—he was the best pitcher of the game, you know, for two months, maybe two and a half months. Uh, was was that enough uh, over the course of the whole year? Could he match up the quantitative numbers of Wheeler? Uh, it remains to be seen. You know, yeah, it's, it's uh, opinions. Uh, certainly can vary on, on that subject as three of us have talked about right here. Yeah. Look, I love the type of pitcher that Zach Wheeler is. I'm all for that workhorse mentality. I, I think, especially in today's game where everyone's uh, for the most part, ignoring what might be happening in front of them and always wanting to get to those talented bullpen arms in front of them. Zach Wheeler gives you a reason to say, no, I'm staying with this guy. And I, that's really endearing in, in today's environment. I love that. I love what Zach Wheeler is all about. Corbin Burns, even though that inning pitch amount is, is lowest out of all the three, there's so much other stuff that I'm, I'm in love with here. And I mean, the ERA plus obviously tops in the NL, the, you know, that that's not, you know, you say, okay, he only gave up seven home runs, big deal. I think that is remarkable in 167 innings. So doing that in 167 innings, striking out 234 guys in 167 innings, leading the league in ERA, K per nine rate, terrific. And the overall consistency, I'm, even though 167 innings, I'm still going to go with, uh, with Corbin Burns here. Strong, strong argument. And Milwaukee is a tough place to pitch. Yeah. All right, guys. Cy Young Awards coming out Wednesday. We'll see how uh, we fare with our predictions. Joe Torrey has been linked to, I believe, three Cy Young Award winners in his career as far as teams that he either played on with teammates or guys he managed directly that went on to win 
the Cy Young Award. So you had Bob Gibson and and Tom Seaver, and then all the way to 2001 with Roger Clemens. But around all of that, right? I mean, David, you're absolutely part of this mix. Uh, and and then you have guys like uh, Phil Necro and uh, who? I mean, Clayton Kershaw. You go into the the vault and just look at the names that Tori either played with or managed on the pitcher's mount, Mariano Rivera. It is remarkable. And we were able to kind of pick his brain about pitching uh, from, from when he was able to play some of the consistencies that we see over time, some things that have changed and overall his, his attitude toward managing a pitching staff. And David, he had terrific stories about you. Well, Joe is one of a kind. Uh, Yeah. It's as I said, that, that, he is kind of a unicorn in this game and all the skill sets that, that he encompasses everything he's been through in this game. If, if there's one guy you'd want to do a six degrees of separation type study on, or, you know, an analysis of it's Joe Torrey, right. When he started, who he played with to, to the end. And you mentioned it from Bob Gibson to, to Clayton Kershaw and everybody in between. I mean, if, if there's one guy that Joe Torrey would be the guy, let, let, let's see if James Smythe can come up with some stuff there. I'm sure he can. You, you put James on the, on the, on the spot, he'll come up with something. But, yes, it, it is a remarkable career that spans so long. You know, I think about the early part of the union, too, the Marvin Miller part that kind of goes unnoticed with Joe Toy. He was right there on the front lines when the union was first starting, when the baseball players were first starting. Kurt Flood was a friend of his. was a teammate. What do you have, James? Oh, well, I, one thing that strikes me is that when he started his career as a player with the Milwaukee Braves, their ace was Warren Spahn. And – you go all through his playing career. You mentioned him catching uh, Bob Gibson during his Cy Young, uh, you know, playing on a team with, with Bob Gibson, Cy Young. And starting his managerial career, his first foray into managing with the Mets, uh, the ace of the staff was Tom Seaver. He had him for about two weeks, and then he was traded to Cincinnati, uh, the, uh, the ill-fated Seaver to the Reds trade. But all through his managing career, his last season, he had Clayton Kershaw. So the lineage of Spahn, Seaver, Kershaw really draws the thread through his, this, this baseball life. Joe was awesome. He gave us some great insight as well. Let's get to it. Joe Torrey here on Toe in the Slab, joining David, James, and myself. Joe, thanks so much for joining us here on Toe in the Slab. Appreciate you taking the time. Look, let's get the good Coney stories out of the way early on here, all right? <laughs> 25 years ago, 1996 happens, and we'll start there. It's 25th anniversary, and you know we wanted you on during October. Um, thought it would be a great time to have you on here, but as we get into the off season, and you think about 1996 more, the 25th anniversary, that's when you started managing David Cohn. So right out of the gate here, as you're trying to acclimate yourself as spring training 1996 begins. What were people telling you about David and, and what did you see firsthand observing him in that spring training, 1996? Well, people didn't have to tell me anything about David. I mean, I, uh, that in fact, before I even put a uniform on, because, uh, you know, David, uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't say he was in no man's land, but, uh, you know, he hadn't committed yet to, uh, you know, coming back to the Yankees and, I, uh, I wanted David, uh, I just, you know, what you have to understand, you know, I had managed 
for a good number of years. And the thing that uh, always haunted me was, you know, just didn't have enough pitching, just didn't have enough pitching. And David had shown me enough over the years as I watched him, you know, from the sidelines that uh, this is somebody who wanted. And uh, is he listening? I just don't know if he's listening to, to all this stuff. I, I just don't want to blow up his head anymore than it is. But um, so, you know, he did come back uh, and, uh, you know, it was uh, it was a big get for me. And then, of course, spring training started and, you know, we're watching David pitch. And, and uh, I said to Don Zimmer, my bench coach, I said, something's wrong here. I just, you know, he's just not commanding. He's not doing things. And, and David would be the last guy to, you know, hold up his hand and say, can I leave the room? Because he, you know, he is who he is. And I remember Don Zimmer, and I don't think I ever told Coney this, but Zimmer said, if we have to worry about Coney, we're screwed. And that's basically what he said. But as it turned out, you know, short time later, they found out he, he was dealing with this aneurysm and, um, you know, the rest is history. David, what were people telling you about Joe as you guys try to come back from that 1995 wild card run? You, you have a new manager here. You were with Mel Stottlemyre before in the past. What was what was Mel telling you about what Joe Torrey was all about? Well, you know, I, I go back and I talked to Paul O'Neill about this as, as well. First impressions are big. And when Joe Torrey had his first spring training meeting, you could just tell he was a player's manager. He commanded respect. He didn't demand respect. He treated everybody, uh, you know, as an adult. And then individually, he did his work. So he would work his way around the room or we'd call individuals into his office. And, and that's when he would maybe elaborate a little bit more on what he expected out of you. But nonetheless, I just remember everybody in the room on the first meeting of his first day as manager of the New York Yankees in spring training and everybody going, wow this is going to be good you know, because this guy gets it. He understands what it's like to be a player. He's in, you know, and that's the thing about Joe is that he's done just about everything in this game at this point. I mean, is there a job in baseball that you haven't done Joe? I mean, from broadcasting to managing to coaching to playing to now, obviously in major league baseball office, working with the commissioner and the umpires. I mean, is there anything left that you haven't done in this game, Joe? I mean, I, I can't think of it. Uh, I'm waiting for somebody <laughs> to tell me so I can jump into it. <laughs> It is remarkable. So, yeah, we knew right away, Justin, you know, from, from day one that, that, that this guy knows what he's doing. There's a quiet confidence about Joe. And he was not afraid of getting fired. He, when, that was, I think, the key was there was a sense that Joe maybe was playing with a little bit of house money, uh, for lack of a better, better term at that point. But George Steinbrenner wasn't going to intimidate Joe Torrey at that point. He didn't care. You know, he was going to do his job the way he wanted to. And he could deal with with, with uh, George Steinberg. And now that we know all these years later that that was probably the, the best job that Joe did was kind of being that buffer and keeping the owner, George Steinbrenner, legendary, obviously, owner, you know, kind of uh, away from the clubhouse, away from the players. And uh, and Joe kind of absorbed that part of it, uh, that that dynamic between owner, very difficult owner and manager and his team. Yeah, David. I, I, Go ahead, Joe. Yeah, I just want to respond to that. I, I just felt that the the thing that was most important, uh, I mean, aside from the meeting, trust me, before that meeting, I lost a lot of sleep 
because I, I understand just from being a player and uh, that the first meeting is very important. You want to get somebody's somebody's attention and try to let people know who you are and what you what you know what your thoughts are. But uh, I, I felt knowing you know what a um, uh, you know what a powerhouse George Steinbrenner was that I had to make sure that this team. Uh, first of all, you know, I have a boss, George Steinbrenner. I mean, it can't hide from that, but they had to know that when it came to baseball decisions that, you know, this, you know, this was me. Uh, and I was doing that. I, I thought that was really important. I'll tell you today's managers, uh, to me, it's very tough to manage today because with all the analytics, you know, whether you like him or don't like him, it's pretty much uh, it's neutered the manager quite a bit. And um, and and I think that's dangerous. But George had to know. I mean, the players had to know that, yes, George was the boss, but they also had to know that when the lineup goes up, that that came from, you know, my office and, and uh, you know, what we decided to do that particular day. So um, and again. I wasn't afraid to get fired. Hell, I was fired three times already. I mean, it it it, it wasn't terminal. So, um, you know, I, I I really felt this was an opportunity for me with an owner like George to uh, you know just to find out if my philosophy and what I think about a manager's uh, job is just to see if you know what I do works and, and you know this to, and as George said you treat you know I mean as Coney said you treat you like a bunch of adults uh, these guys were grown-ups I can tell you that and and uh, they you know pretty much absorbed what I said and and understood what it meant and um, they worked their ass off I mean they they played hard they uh, they were underdogs obviously uh you know, Baltimore was was really a great ball club, and um, of course, Cleveland was a great ball club. But you know, they um, they they worked hard from day one. Joe, how'd you sell yourself the first time meeting George Steinbrenner? Well, I, I don't think I sold myself. Uh, I was on a list. Um, actually, I earlier, I, I think it was October. I met with Gene Michael, who was the general manager and he was going to move over to a different part of, uh, you know, and be an advisor to George. I met with him and, um, and, and, you know, I, I was going to, they offered me the job as general manager, you know, because stick was, was going to change uh, positions. And I, you know, I really couldn't accept that. My, my, first of all, uh, my wife, Allie was pregnant with our daughter and, uh, she was two months away from giving birth. And I, I knew because the question I asked stick, I said, is there any vacation time? And he said, no, I said, I didn't think so, but thanks for offering, but I, I really can't accept it. And then I get a call some weeks later, uh, asked if I'd be interested in being put on the short list to manage the ball club. And I jumped at that. I said, sure. And really the short list and Coney's heard this line before I, it was Tony LaRussa who actually was going to step in where I just got fired in St. Louis. Uh, Davey Johnson, who I guess was committed to Baltimore. And, um, 
you know, Sparky Anderson, who had uh, had retired. I mean, he he left when they had the replacement players the the, the year earlier, and and uh, he wasn't interested in coming back. So there I was, you know. And George's, I don't want to say uh, stuck with me, but you know, I was I was the next guy in line, and uh, I. And again, George didn't scare me. I had known George a little bit because when I managed the Mets, we'd, you know, you'd be together at different functions. And I, I certainly understood that, you know, the relationship I had with George uh, as like a manager of the Mets was going to be different because I didn't work for him. So um, I, you know, I felt this was a bonus opportunity for me. You know, I had managed the three teams I played for and I was fired by all three. And, you know, let's roll the dice. Let's see where, you know, where, where you get to. And, of course, you knew you had ability because this club was an arm's length away from, you know, from going on in postseason the year before. David, you said earlier Joe was the type of guy who commanded respect. And it's funny because, you know, James and I, we're, we're probably around the same age. We grew up around this area joe you were you know we all have yankee ties here you were the dude you were the guy leading our team as youngsters david you were obviously a player on that team but when you know i'm i'm growing up through adolescence and i think of joe tory i always told my friends and we kind of always speak of him the same way we're like man joe tory's the godfather of new york baseball because in in a weird twist i think like I, i equate to that calm demeanor that you have to someone like Pauly Sorvino in Goodfellas, where I forget the line, but it was like, you know, he didn't move fast because he didn't have to move for anybody. Ironically, Paul Sorvino plays you in a movie, a, you know, your your own movie. But James, like, what did you think of like Joe Torre growing up a Yankee fan and, and him being like your man? Like David's obviously a player on that team. But when you have a manager or a coach with that type of longevity, you're growing up with that team. You're growing up with that person. What was that like for you growing up? To me, like I said, I had a uh, a little twist where he's the godfather of New York baseball. Right, and we're we're contemporary, so uh, and being you know ten years old uh, for the first season, and then having the same manager on the team for more than a decade, it really is something for uh, usually managers an itinerant job. These guys, you know, a guy gets hired, they're usually not there for long, but for the immediate success and the staying power, it is like a, almost like a larger than life presence over the club in the way that, you know, whether it's John McGraw with the giants or, or Casey Stengel with those Yankee teams, it is that kind of uh, that presence that, that, that is um, a real part of the club that you really don't see much nowadays. No, I mean, um, you know, Sosha, managed for a, a long period of time and I, you know it's uh, and I'm uh, I'm sorry that you don't see him out on the field again because he's he's special he was a special talent and I I still think there's a lot left in him but I you know I when I go somewhere I remember uh, you know the late Kenny Boyer when he came into my office when I was managing the Mets uh, and he looked up at the wall in my office and there were pictures hanging and he says, boy, I guess you plan to be here for a while. You, you're hanging, you know, personal pictures and stuff. Right. And I've used that expression ever since. I mean, I, you know, when I go somewhere and commit myself to do a job, I hang pictures. I use that 
phrase because you know it, I I take a job like it's it's gonna I'm gonna be there a while and again it's up to somebody else to change my mind but at that point in time I'm committed and uh, you know hopefully you have the success and with the Yankees it worked we won the first year which, which certainly was uh, was a huge benefit for me because you know how fickle George could be. Uh, you know, especially with his ball club just getting nosed out the year before and then getting beat again. But we we went out there and were fighting uphill the whole time. I mean, we you know we won the division fairly easy, and uh, but then you know division series we lose the first game in a best of five at home, and we come back and win that. And uh, you know, Baltimore we got a break in right field when Derek Jeter hit a home run. Uh, to win a ball game, which turned out to be a home run. But uh, somebody had asked me, you, you wish replay was in, in play at that time? I said, no. Uh, you know, I'm happy the way that result was. And, you know, with the Braves right, in the World Series, they beat us the first two at home. And, you know, and, and actually David Cohn was the lifeline for me. That may have been the best decision I made in the World Series, my first World Series in 96. And I had called David in and explained why I wanted him to pitch game three, because he certainly had the credentials to be a one or two guy. But I felt he was the only one that ever pitched it, uh, you know, in Atlanta. And, uh, you know, not enough people know how, how the ball jumps there, but David... I, I knew he wouldn't melt away. I mean, he, he's uh, yeah, he's got a lot going on that doesn't show up on the stat sheet. That left-handed bat. He wanted to get my bat in the lineup too in a <laughs> National League game. That game three, sixth inning, you're you're walking out to the mound, and you you get pretty close to David for reassurances. You tell him, you know, don't bullshit me. We need this game sort of, and David, David sold it. He later said that, you know, he, he was lying. Right. Uh, what, what were you thinking though, Joe, as you turned back and walked to the dugout in that situation? Well, I knew he lied to me, but the one thing about <laughs> David, yeah, he finds a way to get it done. And, and, you know, that's, that's the thing, David, you know, I'm all right. You know, I'm all right. You know, that's fine. But he'll find a way to be all right. I mean, that that's just what I felt. I, I, I felt, you know, that's what I that's what I think we're missing today, you know, because everything has to be spelled out. I don't know if it's to, uh, I don't know, to make our game a perfect game, but it's not. But David Cohn has to figure out a way to, you know, to make it happen. I mean, you can fast forward to the Met World Series, right? Bring him in to pitch to Piazza, uh, you know, and he, he winds up popping him up with a 80-something mile an hour fastball. I mean, it, it it's something about David that uh, is much deeper than, you know, than the ball that he throws. David, you go back to that mound conference and the first time he asks and you say you're good, do you think, all right, that's over with? And then what do you think of when he gets nose to nose with you? Yeah, he wanted to make eye contact. You know, I, there's a couple of things that Joe has done that, that I've never seen before from any manager. And that was one of them, that mound visit. Because usually starting pitchers that are in a jam, 
they don't want to make eye contact. I'm kind of looking down, I'm looking up, I'm around. And Joe made sure that he made eye contact with me. And he says, uh, he says, I, I need to find out. Are you okay? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay. And he inched a little closer. He says, no, no, uh, I need to know. This is too important. And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm okay. And then, you know, I'm looking down. He said, no, no, I, I, he gets closer and he almost nose to nose. And he wanted to look into my eyes. He wanted me to make eye contact with him. And so the third time he said, I need to know you're okay. And, you know, and that, just like that, there was no, there wasn't a lot of words. It was just, it was very direct and right to the point. And we made eye contact and I said, yeah, I'm okay. I'm, I got this. And, you know, and, and to me, it was more about execution at that point. And, you know, this is the part where we, we were trained that way. I was trained to, to trick myself. You had to, you had to trick, you had to lie to yourself almost. I'm tricking myself. Yeah. I can get Fred McGriff out. I have this pitch and this weapon and I'm going to go about it this way. And that's what I was consumed with. I wasn't consumed with, yeah, maybe I'm fatigued. Maybe I'm getting tired. Maybe the matchup isn't great. No, that's that's not the way we were raised. Uh, you know, we were raised to, to trick ourselves first. So I joked afterwards and said, you know, I, I straight up lied to Joe Torre. You know, that was me being glib and in, in the aftermath, and you know, in, in the press conference. But the first guy you lie to is yourself. That's the way we were trained. You know, of course I can get Fred McGriff out. The bases are loaded. You know, this is the pitch I have to do it. This is the pitch I've been working on all year to be able to get him out, whether it was a splitter or, or whatnot. And, you know, that, that's the way we thought. So, yeah, the, the whole the whole part about lying to your manager, that was more of just being glib after a game, and, you know, trying to make copy a little bit, trying to help the writers. Yeah, well, and, I, and, and let, me, let me just put an exclamation point there. When he said, yeah, I'm all right, you know, I, I, I had some doubts about that. But the next comment he just – talked about was I've got this now that that is the commitment right there uh, that you know yeah you've got this even though you're something less than you want to be but uh, that that's the part where you you, you probably uh, you know the trust factor uh, is so much more hey, Joe we talk about some of the modern day advancements on this podcast, how they kind of blend in with the heartbeat of an athlete on the field and how that dynamic works around the game right now. A uh, contemporary of yours through the years, you mentioned, you know, Tony LaRussa, longtime Cardinal manager. He's back in the game, uh, pushing 80 years old. Have you talked to him about what he's had to experience managing in 2021? Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I was with Tony, uh, last week and, uh, I'll be with him in, at the end of this week because he has his fundraiser for his, uh, you know, for his animal uh, rescue foundation. Uh, again, you know, he, he shot himself in the foot, you know, with the 3-0 and pitch where, you know, his hitter hit a home run and, you know, he criticized him. And there, there are a lot of things that are a little different. I mean, Tony, Tony has, has been – uh, you know, probably uh, more analytics uh, in his time, maybe than the rest of us. Uh, so I, I, you know, I, I think it just becomes a feel thing between, you know, how to use it. And, um, and again, the, the, the thing about it is the players have to trust you. And, and it seemed that Tony, was able to, to, I don't want to say sell that, but I think the players felt that after a period of time and, you know, they played hard for him. They, they, obviously they weren't as good as uh, the Astros, but, 
you know, they, they won the division, uh, you know, pretty convincingly. Um, but again, he, you know, when he first told me he was going back to managing, I, I, I spent time trying to talk him out of it. And, you know, after he kept talking and talking and talking, uh, both Jimmy Leland and I said, you're doing the right thing. I, I don't know what else to tell him. He, he's got that passion. You know, when he worked uh, with uh, the office, like, you know, I used to, you know, he, there was something missing. He needed to have a team to root for. And, um, you know, and God bless him. You know, he's, he's still spending, has spent a lot of time in Chicago, you know, talking about next year. And um, I just told him he's not going to be able to go into the Hall of Fame again. This is only one shot for him. He can't do it again. When you watch the game today, you watch pitching today, this is a pitching centric podcast. What a, when you watch that different workloads, the usage, what does that, does that change? What's been the biggest change there in, from the manager's perspective? Well, I, I again, it, it's the looking in somebody's eyes and no, and again, you, you watch pitchers. It's like watching a, a runner run to first base. You know, he's not going to, you're not going to believe him when he said I, I ran hard because you see him every single at bat. Uh, and you can tell the difference, but I, I, I have a concern and I, I know, you know, cause Coney is in that booth and, and he explains it as well as anybody, uh, talking about the analytics and, and how the pitcher feels and things like that. And yeah, there are things, you know, you, probably from the analytics that the, the spin rate isn't there as much as it was earlier but I'm still of a mind that I, that does, you know, that's not going to take a guy out of the game. If I still feel that, you know, there's enough there that he's going to work. I I think we, as I said earlier, I think we try to make it a perfect game. Um, But the thing that bothers me about the pitching aspect of it, you take people out after 70 pitches or 80 pitches because you don't want them to go through the, the lineup the third time. And uh, are we ever going to have that young pitcher learn how to get out of trouble instead of taking him out before he gets in trouble? I mean, to me that, you know, when you get a gem like that and they don't come down the road every, you know, uh, every 10 minutes, those are the special ones that will fight their way out of a jam. And I, I don't, uh, I'm not sure we're going to be able to get that that starter, uh, you know, that opportunity to to show us, uh, you know, if you can leave him out there and if he can grind his way through. That that's a concern to me with young pitchers. It's it's very understandable, and, uh, and that's kind of uh, you know where the rubber meets the road, right, Joe? I mean, uh, that's the entertainment part. I think we're coming up against the entertainment value of the game where the, you know, the starting pitcher and the, the arc of his start. And, and then when the action starts to happen, then he gets taken out of the game. So, you know, how's he ever going to learn? You know, all those points are, are certainly salient. Uh, you know, I, I think back to the way you managed in postseason sometimes as a precursor. I mean, Denny Nagel, four and two thirds innings, you took him out. Uh, Tino Martinez, Paul O'Neill, you talked about sitting them down or Wade Boggs, 
you know, in order for the betterment of the team in postseason. I think you kind of set the tone in terms of managing to win. You know, this right here, right now, Mike Piazza for the third time up in this game, you're not going to let Denny Nagel face him in a close game. Or Wade Boggs, you're not going to play. We're going to have Charlie Hayes in this game. But you're going to play a role later on, and you had him right at the perfect time to pinch it at the end of the, you know, at the end of, I think, game five. Uh, when we came back in that big game and Wade Boggs works the walk, it gives us the go-ahead and it, it gives us that that big turnaround game in the middle of that World Series. It seems to me like you were you were kind of a, ahead of your time in terms of decision-making, particularly in postseason. And you know, I can understand that. I guess it, it depends on your personnel. It depends on your starting pitcher, which one's out there. But in today's game, you have so many big arms in the bullpen. I mean, it seems like every – you remember when you got Jabba Chamberlain and it was like, oh, wow, we got one of those guys that can throw 100. You know, now every team's got three or four of those guys that throw 100, it seems like. So if I'm a manager, it'd be hard not to bring in those guys or to utilize all those arms you have in the bullpen. Now, even if even if they're maximum effort guys, even if they're only for one inning or two innings, uh, boy, they, they, they're tough to hit. There's a lot of talent down there in the bullpens nowadays. Well, there, there's no question. I mean, uh, the quality of the player, uh, you know, that's why there was – there was some talk about moving the mound back uh, just to give the hitter uh, an extra uh, wink of the eye to, to, to see the ball. No, I, there's no question. I mean, when you got the, the, the velocity of these young pitchers coming in and, you know, just give me as much as you have for as long as you have it, go get them. Uh, I'm, uh, you know, again, uh, I, I I think everybody's geared right now. I think the hitters are all geared to hit the fastball. I mean, I, I don't care anything else. I mean, you you watch what happened in San Francisco and that young that young pitcher was just throwing changeup after changeup. I I think if Greg Maddox was still pitching today, he'd go undefeated. Uh, you know, because he changes speed so much. But no, I I, I the players, you know. The, the players are talented uh, they're they're really talented uh i'm not crazy about you know on the offensive side you know teaching the uppercut swing and the launch angle and all that because i i still i still have trouble buying into that the fastball or the pitch comes in on one plane and now you're trying to catch it on the way by uh, on a on a much di- different plane but, you know, there's a ton of home runs. But I, I, and you talk about entertainment value. Uh, as I say, the fans enjoy the, the ability of these players. But uh, as a baseball fan, um, to me, the enjoyment is we need more action on the field. Um, you know, you have strikeouts and walks and, stri- and, and home runs. Um, there's so much more to the game, at least the game that I, uh, that I was, uh, raised to, to watch and play and then, you know, be lucky enough to manage. And, uh, there, there's, there's more to it. And, uh, I'm, I'm just concerned about taking the human element out of it. You know, Joe, there's a couple of things I wanted while we have you here, um, Rule, potential rule changes. There's talks mm-hmm. about, you know, universal DH, but maybe tying the DH to the pitcher, the starting pitcher leaving the game as potential as one rule change, maybe limiting the amount of relievers you can carry on the roster. 
I know you've been in the middle of it and a lot of these conversations about how to grow the game. I know how much you love the game. Are there any of these new conversations or new uh, theoretical rule changes that you particularly like or something that might gain, gain some traction? Uh, you know, I was never for the three, three hitter minimum. Uh, I, and again, I'm putting myself in the dugout uh, and, and I'm saying, uh, I bring in a pitcher and now all of a sudden it's ball one, ball two, ball three, ball four, ball five, ball six, ball seven, ball eight. Now you got one more hitter he has to face. I mean, and that, and again, is that going to happen once a year or twice a year? That's too many, uh, you know, because the time you, uh, when it happens, because, you know, we've seen, we've seen pitchers come out of the bullpen for the Yankees pitching the first time in Fenway Park, man, they can't, they couldn't keep the ball in the field, in the field of play, you know, because the emotion of, um, I, you know, I, I agree with the fact that instead of the, the three hitter minimum, uh, you know, why don't we limit the number of pitchers that a team can have on its, on its roster? Because then, you know, then they have to maybe fight their way through uh, a lineup, you know, and, and, and not in an uncomfortable situation. But, uh, you know, I, 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 changes in baseball are fine, but when, they start messing with the strategy, uh, even though I know that you, you know, you implement a new strategy now with this three batter minimum. You know, I, I, I sort of like the chess game that the managers play and you're really taking some of that away from them. The three batter minimum hasn't even really addressed the issue that the, the initial intent was to do that. Speed all right, we'll game. do this and then shorten the game, fewer pitching changes. We're still getting more pitching changes and, and more relievers entering the game. So we're not really getting that trade off either. Well, yeah, exactly right. I mean, I, I keep referring to a game before you guys were born. Uh, you know, when the, the game seven of the World Series in 1960 with the Yankees and, and the Pittsburgh Pirates, when uh, Mazurowski hit the home run in the ninth inning to win the World Series, that was 10 to nine. Okay, and, and it was two hours and a half uh, that ball game, but that's not the the one that gets your attention for me. You look at the box scores; there were no strikeouts in the game, absolutely none. Uh, that tells you they were pitching to contact. We're no longer pitching to contact; we're pitching to strike people out right from the first pitch. And you know, and David, you know. You know, when you're out on the mound, there's certain situations that you need to get a strikeout, you know, and, you, and your thought process changes as it goes. But before that, you, 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 when you get somebody with two strikes, you know, now you, you, you're thinking a little bit more like a Gibson or Koufax would reach back and get a little bit more because they need a strikeout in this situation. Um, but, uh, you know, we're not pitching the contact. You know, the, the, the thing used to be, you know, where the catcher would say the best pitch is strike one. That's not the case anymore. We're, we're trying to strike people out from, you know, with no count. Joe, you played with Bob Gibson. I know you just mentioned his name. You managed Clayton Kershaw. That covers a lot of time in the dugout. From a, a skill set perspective, what is the one constant that's remained the same with pitching? And well, I mean, to me, 
uh, you know, David Cohn. I mean, you know, he possessed uh, something in his belly that those two guys that you're talking about, you know, have. You know, they 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 will themselves to to get things done. Find a way. Find a way. Bob Gibson. I I I pretty much was proud of the fact that I. I could put the ball in play, you know, when I was playing for the Braves, I get up at the bases loaded, nobody out with Gibson in the first inning. He struck me out on three pitches. I swung and missed. I still to this day don't know how I didn't follow hit the ball, but it, it's it, there's something that they have, you know, in their DNA that allows them to say, I not on my watch, you're not. And, uh, you know, Coney is that guy. Uh, Kershaw, you know, became that guy. Let me tell you, Kershaw, my first year in 96, we were still in Vero Beach. I mean, not 96, uh, Kershaw's first year in 08 when I was uh, with the Dodgers. Uh, he was pitching a, a game at night in, in Vero Beach and he threw the first pitch out of the ballpark. I mean, he threw the first pitch that was hit out of the ballpark and that's the first time I saw him throw a pitch and it was a home run. I just watched him. I didn't watch the ball. And he just looked at the umpires. Give me another ball. To me, that was a good sign too. You know, he didn't look forlorn. Oh my goodness. What did I just do? So, I mean, little things like that, but Kershaw didn't become the Kershaw that, you know, is going to the hall of fame. Uh, he had to be convinced uh, that he needed a pitch other than the fastball and the curveball. Uh, because those two pitches, the way he threw them, you know, especially his curveball, as big as it was, you didn't always get a strike uh, because it was so big, like like Koufax had. And, you know, finally, uh, you know, his pitching coach um, finally talked him into, you know, throwing the slider for a strike. It, believe me. He was hard-headed, man, and you, you you had trouble talking him into that, but he, you know, eventually tried it and, you know, sort of fell in love with it, and then, you know, from there came the changeup, and there he was. You know, he's the, he's the pitcher that, uh, you know, can, can get you out in a number of ways. What's it like managing a young pitcher? Like you said, first time you saw him, you saw maybe an intangible that could potentially lead to greatness. What is it like managing that type of pitcher when they're very young in their career and they have so much potential ahead of them? Well, I, I try to protect young pitchers. You know, he, he, he didn't like me very much early on because I sent him to the minor leagues for one, one stint after he was up and, you know, he, he was angry at that. And, and I, I just, didn't want to trust him in, in a situation in the postseason uh, because I didn't want it to be a bad. And I, you know, I, I still had to be convinced of, you know, not doing any damage. So I really erred on the, on the side of, uh, of safety with him, but you knew he was special. I mean, I, you know, we were talking about there are a lot of uh, organizations that wanted to trade for Kershaw for some significant players. And, 
you know, Ned Coletti, the GM at the time with the Dodgers said, no, 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 you know, and once I saw Kershaw and his stuff and, and, you know, just basically his uh, stature and, and just the way he would, uh, you know, dare people, uh, I could see why they, they, you know, just wanted to hold, hold him back because he was, he is special. He was, he had special ability. Uh, he had that tenacity and it was never good enough, you know, just like winning the Cy Young, you know, is that going to be enough? No, he wanted to do it again uh, because he is that type of player. And the thing about, uh, about uh, Kirsch and David Cohn and Bob Gibson, you say that's the one pitcher that, you know, made this, you know, made the difference in this player. But the reason it made, I mean, in this team, and the reason it made the difference is because when you have somebody that you trust like that with the ball in key situations, it makes the other guys, the other starters around them much better because all of a sudden it's not going to be on their shoulders. So I, there's so much more that a pitcher like that has and adds to a team than just, uh, you know, his win-loss and earn-run average. So you touched on a couple of things there that could segue us well into some of the questions that we had some fans draw up. So they sent some of their questions in only a couple there. We'll, we'll get to them in a second, but between you and between David, I mean, you both served as a player rep when you were active, you supported the hiring of, of Marvin Miller. Remember there's the famous picture of Miller speaking and you're one of the guys in the background there. And Later on in your career, you were able to work for the league office, seeing it from that side as well. What do you think is at stake for both sides here as they try and come to an agreement over a new CBA? Well, you know, between those two times, because when Marvin came on, you know, I was in negotiations on a regular basis and the owner's side would just say, no, 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 no. There was no you know, talk about negotiating anything because they had all the, you know, everything on their side and they didn't want to give anything back, which eventually burned them. Um, and, and, um, it, uh, you know, what's going on now is, is much different because, you know, they've gone back and forth now for a number of years. The thing that worries me is, uh, you know, Michael Weiner when he was head of the uh, union, you know, it seemed like there was a, a trust that sort of developed between the two, the two parties, which I, I think led to, you know, peace. Uh, right now, it, it, it just doesn't seem that, you know, it, 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 it's, it's, not, it's not good. I mean, that's the sense I get. I have nothing to do with negotiations. I you know, I'm, I'm not involved. Nobody asked my opinion and any of that stuff, but I have a sense that, uh, you know, it's sort of like watching Congress and in, in the political scene, you know, they, they want to win the day as opposed to, you know, you know, getting things done. And, and, you know, to me, we got to keep the bait, the game, the game has got to be at the top of the list that both sides should be responsible for making sure you take care of it. 
And, um, and I, I hope the heck that, you know, that turns out to be the reason that they get a deal done because I, you know, winning the day and saying I was right and he was wrong doesn't, doesn't solve anything. And there's just too much of that going around. David, what about you being a former player rep, seeing the work that you put yourself and some of your peers when you were playing the the work that you put into all that, trying to preserve for the generation ahead of you, when you see what's going on right now, what do you think about? Well, I'm kind of lucky because I had a chance to actually meet Marvin Miller, spend some time with him. And I understand, you know, the plight of what Joe Torrey and, and his era went through and, kind of paved the way for the current players. And I'm not sure that history's taught well enough to the current players. And I worry about that part of it, of understanding how all this started, what it's all about. And if I were to say, if I were to, to give any advice to any of the current players now, based on what happened when I was part of the Players Association, and it was the big one when I was there, when, you know, it was when the World Series was canceled in the mid-90s. Um, I would say... It's about freedom issues, back to Kurt Flood, which Joe Torrey knows a little bit about Kurt Flood as well. Uh, If you're a high school player and you're drafted out of high school, you could be controlled by a team for 12 years, theoretically, six years. And I mentioned this in our previous podcast, six years on the minor league level, six years on the major, major league level. And for the players, it should be, those are the sorts of issues you should be talking about. Freedom issues, getting, getting to free agency a little bit sooner getting a little bit more control over your, your career a little sooner, maybe going to arbitration a year sooner. Those are the sorts of issues the players should be talking about because when you get into billionaire owners versus millionaire ballplayers, nobody's going to have any sympathy. The fan base is going to get turned off. That's not an argument you can win. But if you talk in those sorts of terms about, you know what, the, the veteran fourth outfielder or the extra guys on your team, the 30-something-year-old guy has really been marginalized because – We'll just say, hey, I, I, I'm not going to pay you that kind of money. I'm going to just go for cheap labor, so to speak. I'm going to I'm going to go with a younger player and contractual control and surplus value is all at the beginning of everybody's career right now. Those are things that need to be addressed. If you're Tony Clark about, you know, whether that's a minimum wage increase or whether it's a little bit of freedom sooner for these players to be able to level the playing field a little bit, because those marginal players, those 32, 33 year old outfielders or relief pitchers can make or break your team. and you know, Joe knows this. And in the 90s for the Yankees, you know, I said this before, our fourth outfielder was Daryl Strawberry or Tim Raines. I mean, he's a very valuable player that was able to know their role and come onto our team. But, you know, the, the decision back then wasn't, ah, well, we can do a rookie outfielder rather than pay Daryl Strawberry or Tim Raines, you know, what they're worth in their 30s, uh, you know, becomes a, you know, a cost analysis and a, and a contractual control analysis as opposed to, you know, what's the best product on the field? So I I agree with Joe there in that terms of the most important thing is the product on the field. What are the changes that can be made to the game itself that we can all agree on? And for the players, it's about freedom. It's about rights. And then the the sooner you can control your own contract, the sooner you can control your own career, the better off you're going to be, because at least you have a choice. You can say at some point in my career, I have the, I have the the chance to choose where I want to work. And I'm 29 years old as opposed to 34 years old. You know, it happens in the prime of my career instead of post-prime or just entering the post-prime of my career when I'm finally a free agent. And now all the analytics and all the front offices are saying, well, we're not going to pay you now, you know, uh, based on on the fact that our models tell us that 
post 30 years old, you're, you're going to diminish in value. And so to me, that's the number one issue for the players to, to address right now. Service time manipulation at the bottom, contractual control at the bottom, and surplus value being all on the, on the side of the younger players coming right out of the minor leagues. That needs to be addressed. So let's get to some fan questions here because a lot of people chimed in on uh, on Twitter when we just told them that Joe Torrey was going to be our guest here on Toe in the Slab, and there's some good ones. And uh, right out of the gate, I'm going to throw you a softie because they're going to get a little bit harder, a little more pressing as, as they go along. There's only a few of them, though. Uh, at two underscore IBS, what do you miss most about managing? Well, it's, it, it's the people and and – you know, something I used to do in my basement with a friend of mine, you'd, you'd have the cards and you'd have the dice and you'd roll it. You, you know, you'd be playing baseball and, you know, all of a sudden you're doing it with real people. It's, I, I think what I miss is the challenge of having everybody, um, you know, understand what direction we're going. And that, that was my job uh, to, you know, and I, and I always tried to do it in a way, uh, tried to simplify it for, for everybody involved uh, that we, because there, you know, any distraction in baseball is going to take away from your ability. Uh, it's a tough enough game to play when you're concentrating 100%. And, and my, my, I feel my job, and, that, and that, that stuff is a challenge. You know, you win in 96 and you win in 98, uh, but you know, they're different. And, and to me as a manager, the, the ability to have a sense of, you know, what your team is like and how you have to go about, you know, uh, making them understand, you know, what our needs are and where we have to go. Uh, that's what I miss because uh, it really is stimulating for me. And it was always exciting to try to put that puzzle together every year. All right. Jimmy and Jake time chimed in at talking Yanks. Are you familiar with at talking Yanks? No. Oh, okay. Well, they're big, big podcasts and uh, they actually are our bosses. So um, they offered up a question here. They wanted to know, and this was something that rang a bell when you were talking about the trade offers for Clayton Kershaw and your, your final years as a Dodgers manager. They wanted to know how much say did you have in what offseason moves the Yankees made when you were manager? Uh, you know, I, I was considered. I remember when, you know, the, the biggest trade, we got Alex uh, and, you know, trading Soriano. Uh, that, that's when Aaron Boone got hurt because he was going to be our third baseman. But, uh, you know, they, they asked me about my thoughts on that. And then the other one was um, getting Clemens, uh, you know, especially when Wells had done so well. Uh, I, I jumped on both of those, uh, but I, I, I don't know, you can say how much say I had, but I agreed with what they were thinking. I, I'm not sure what the result would have been if I didn't agree on what they were thinking, because uh, the, we pulled the trigger on both those. And, uh, and so I, I guess I was consulted uh, in a lot of areas and, in a lot of areas, I didn't get what I asked for either. But, you know, that's you have to accept that. You know, you, 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 you don't get everything you want. You have to try to make it work if you don't. And, um, but as far as the trades, yes, I, I, I had say, uh, you know, nowadays, I think there are some ball clubs that will do things 
And then the manager finds out about it later on, which I think is dangerous. David, Joe mentioned Boomer's name. What did he call you? What was you the craziest teammate, the wildest teammate? Which one? Boomer calling me? Yeah. What, what was that? <laughs> you know, they, they played the clip on talking, yeah, talking Yanks. What was cra- it? Craziest, wildest teammate, I guess. You know, I mean, okay. you know, I told Joe this after the fact that I really took Boomer under my wing because I saw somebody who was floundering a little bit, somebody who was, it was dangerous, dangerously close to affecting our team. And uh, I, I really felt like Boomer needed a friend. And, you know, I'm not taking credit for anything that happened that year other than the fact that I really got in his hip pocket and really pushed him and really tried to help him along because I thought he was that important to our team. And this was 1998. And, uh, he, you know, Boomer was a tough guy because he, he was always seeking approval. And, he, you know, it, it, sometimes that became a little high maintenance for pitching coaches and managers. And sometimes he was perceived as being a little bit selfish at times, too, because, it was all about him instead of the team. And uh, I think that was just, you know, that was just Boomer, you know, his personality reaching out for, for approval and needing a friend. And his father was never around uh, in his childhood. So usually a lot of these guys, it goes back to the childhood and your background and your upbringing. And, you know, if you, if you didn't have a father around, uh, you know, that, that impacts how, how you act around a team or around a manager. It was, Joe, Joe was always perceived as, as kind of a second father to a lot of his players. And certainly that was the case with us in the nineties. I think we all felt that way, that that kind of respect that we had for him and, uh, you know, and, and Boomer, Boomer was a different cat, you know, there's no doubt about it. He was, uh, he could cause a lot of gray hairs for managers, but I really felt he was that important that year that, you know, that, that I, I was going to do anything I could to, to bring him along, help him out because we really needed him. And he came through that year for us. Uh, you know, in 98, he beat Cleveland and Cleveland in the playoffs. He, he, he motored right through the postseason, and since he threw his perfect game, I think it was in May that year. I think he was the best pitcher in the American League from his perfect game from that date, May seventeenth, through the end of the year. I think he was the best pitcher in the league, even though it was a league that had Pedro Martinez and Roger Clemens as well. I think finished first and second in the Cy Young. Boomer finished third that year in Cy Young, and you know that was the '98 Yankees. Yeah, I tell you, David, uh, you know David Cohen. Uh, there was an incident, uh, where was it in Texas? I guess it was where he had a big lead and I just thought, you know, he, he was throwing more than pitching out there. I took him out of the game and we really, I, I think that was the low point in our relationship. And we were going to Minnesota. I think it was from there. And David made a point, David Cohn made a point of getting us together one on one, and it was a little give and take on both our sides because he didn't like the fact that I w- had somebody warming up, uh, you know, when he had this lead, and uh, so you know it was a little give and take. I, I appreciated it, but Coney was the one uh, responsible for for making that possible, which uh, worked for on both sides, and uh, the relationship improved and the understanding of each other improved. So, uh, you know, he was, he was a big reason why it happened. You remember that David? I do remember it. I I, I know that, you know, uh, David Wells was at the point where you thought that he might go nuclear, so to speak, in terms of going to the media and start becoming a real distraction to the team, maybe blasting his manager, blasting Joe, blasting Mel, uh, you really, you, you know, going full bore and, and turning this thing into a, a much bigger situation than it needed to be. And I, 
that's when I stepped in and said, no, 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 we're going to have a team meeting. We're going to have a, you're going to have a one-on-one meeting with Joe Torre. You're going to come to the bar early. You're going to go into his office. We're going to close the door and you guys are going to, you're going to hash this thing out. And if you've got something to say, if you want to yell and scream, you want to get mad and that's the time to do it. Don't do it in the media. Don't do it later. Don't take shots that are going to hurt your teammates. Because if you do that, you're hurting me. You're hurting your teammates, you know, because we have a mission here and, and, and nothing's going to get in the way of that. So you're going to go into Tori's office and you're going to have it out and you're going to get it out of your system. And I remember talking to Joe after that. <laughs> I remember we were in batting practice and I went to Joe. And I said, well, I, I kind of heard. I, actually, I was outside the door. I could hear. And so <laughs> I, I remember uh, Joe going, whoa, that, that was that was a little rough. Uh, but I said, Joe, let me have it. My God, I'm the rest of the way. He needed that. Uh, it's going to help. And, uh, you know, from that point on, you know, I think, uh, you know, it was shortly thereafter that he threw his perfect game. And, and then we just rolled from that point on. And he wasn't a distraction the rest of the year. He, he was a pitcher. He was the number one pitcher on one of the greatest teams of all time, the 98 Yankees. All right. A couple more before we let you go, Joe. And let me see. Kevin Gerard. Uh, he's got a really long Twitter handle. His name's Kevin Gerard, though. I think I know the answer to this, but you're always taught – you know, if don't ask the question that you already know the answer to, I don't know, fully know the answer to this one. So I'm asking it here for on behalf of Kevin Gerard. Why didn't the Yankees bunt on Kurt Schilling in game six of the 04 ALCS? Yeah, I, uh, again, I didn't want, you didn't know what you could believe. Uh, and this was me. Uh, and they, they played this, uh, this injury, this injury. I said, guys, let's just go out and play our game. I just, I, I didn't want to apply any strategy and, and that may have turned out to be the wrong decision, but going in, I, I just didn't want, uh, and that, that would have been a distraction. I said, we're good enough. We can go out and just beat them and, and let's not take away from our game uh, by doing things. And, and as I say, it, it may have been the wrong way to go, but that was the reason that, that we didn't is I didn't want to, you know, get off of who we were and how we went about our game. Fair enough. I have one. I got to get one question in before we're done here. I know we're getting close to the end, Joe. There were so many times where you were, you know, I mentioned before that you were the buffer for the owner between the owner and the players in the clubhouse. And I know there was in years past, I talked to the seventies Yankees and that stuff never got filtered. It always got to the clubhouse. So is there any one thing that stands out to you? Any one story or one situation during during your years as a Yankee manager when George Steinbrenner was very active and, and very prominent, was there anything that didn't get to us uh, that, that you want to share with us now? Any any stories that we haven't heard yet? And I know everybody wants a George Steinbrenner story, and I know there's a, a hundred of them that, that, well, that you, you cut off with the past, but anything you could share? The one thing, and, and I, you know, I found this out, I, I mean, I realized this, not by mistake, but just by happenstance, Mendoza, uh, and I don't know whether what year it was, uh, 96, 97, whatever, but he gave up a base hit late in the game at home, and Bob Watson was still the GM. So, uh, and, you know, I, I, we lost the game, and I walk into my office, the phone rings as soon as I get in my office, and it's, it's, it's Waddy, it's Bob Watson. And he says, George wants to send Mendoza to minor leagues. I said, fine. Uh, you know, and, I, and, you know, we had a conversation uh, and 
I said to Bob, I said, just make sure that George knows that if the writers, uh, the media ask me if I want to do this, I'm not going to lie. I said, I can't do that. I can't lie. Uh, you know, I'm just going to say, no, this is what, you know, what George wants to do. And, you know, he's the boss. I mean, I'm not backing off from that. So, so Bob says, okay, uh, let me call you back. So he, I guess, conferred with George. And then he called me back about five minutes later. He said, George says, next time he gives up the base hit, he's going to the minor league. <laughs> and I said, uh-oh, I think I found something out here. So that, it, it served me well. But yeah. uh, Great you know, strategy, great and, strategy. Yeah. And again, I, it just happened by mistake. I wasn't threatening anybody, but I, I just wanted to let him know I wasn't going to back him up and say, yeah, that's what I wanted to do too. Because, uh, you know, relationship as far as, you know, whether the player uh, likes me or doesn't like me, they're going to get, you know, the honesty from me. So uh, I just felt that was important that uh, I, I just needed to tell him that. All right. One more before we let you go. And only because David kind of put me on this, this wavelength here, you got to give us the best David Cohn story. No, oh, Coney? My God, which is the best table? Oh, well, I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess I can give you one. This is your show, Tony. I mean, Coney, <laughs> so I can I can do this. He come out of a game and, uh, you know, he wanted to smoke a cigarette. And, uh, you know, I told him he can go ahead and use my office, Well, which I, I told him that up front. He can do it anytime he wants and just go in. And, you know, I come back, I come back after the game. He had a, a rough outing and I guess uh, there were men on base. I don't remember the, the particular time, but I guess men on base and the reliever come in and gave up the runs or whatever the heck happened. And I come in after the game and I had this big picture. Uh, a friend of mine uh, bought me this, this uh, photo uh, of, Mickey Mantle uh, wearing number six. He wore number six. And so that was my number. And a friend of mine bought me this, this photo and he was coming across home plate for home run or whatever it was. And the, the, it was broken. In other words, the, the frame was broken and, and whatever. Uh, and phone, you know, Coney come in and say he'd take care of it. Well, he, I guess through the ashtray or whatever it was against the picture. And uh, that's, that's the best one I can come up with um, <laughs> that nobody knows, but since <laughs> it's his podcast, what the hell? I figured we can let it loose now. True story. Cannot deny it. <laughs> we had the pictures, but you know, I was scrambling before the end of the game with the clubbies, you know, Rob Cacuzzo. I said, you got to get this picture off. we got to get another picture on. So we had, we had it switched up. We took that picture down and then had a Robbie had something in storage somewhere that he put back up there. And, and of course, Joe, Joe noticed that it didn't take him long. And uh, so, yeah, I obviously, I, I paid to have the, the frame, uh, you know, fixed, but yeah, you thought I was a pretty sheepish at that point. I mean, I, you're in the manager's office and I snapped and I threw something and broke a picture in the manager's office. And that, that's not good. It's not good, Justin. Well, Justin, just gives you an idea of the passion this guy played with and, uh, and, and just had the, it was in his DNA. I can't help it. And I, 
you know, I never got angry, obviously, because I, you know, it's like Andy Pettit. Andy Pettit used to come in my office every night and apologize on his way home because he thought he showed me up on the mound. Because when I went out to take him out of a game, he'd stare a hole through me. And, uh, you know, and he thought it was disrespectful and uh, he thought he showed me up. So I just said, don't ever lose your passion. Don't worry about it. We can handle all that stuff, but uh, just keep pitching the way you're pitching. That's all. Oh, David's passion shines through everything he does. And that's, I think, why uh, we wanted to start something like this. But you have Andy Pettit apologizing for his, his performance. You have David apologizing for breaking items in your office. Nice job, David. Very yeah. good. But, but David Wells never apologized for anything. <laughs> he still not. He still won't. <laughs> Joe, this has been terrific. Thank you so much for carving out some time for us here on uh, and reliving some of these stories and taking us down the uh, the mind of an all-time great Hall of Fame manager and player. Joe, thanks so much. Well, it, it's a pleasure. I enjoyed doing it. Sorry I held you guys up for a while. Not at all, Joe. It's, it's uh, great to have you on. Uh, much appreciated. You know you know how much I love you, and I know how much I appreciate you over the years, everything we've been through. So, Well, yeah. Tony, I, it, it's it's a pleasure. You know how I, what I think of you. You've been supportive of our foundation, and um, – and, I, you know, there was one other story, if you got a second here. We have all the time, man. Yeah, well, we had, <laughs> it, it was, uh, I guess it was, was it 98? I guess it was 98. You were pitching against Cleveland at home. And, um, and I remember Manny Ramirez come up. It was the bases loaded. And I went out to the mound because, you know, David looked like he was, you know, struggling a little bit. And I, I said, what do you think? He says, I got this guy. And I turned around and walked back to the dugout and Manny Ramirez popped up. And then next hitter, Jim Tomey hit a grand slam. And uh, I said, Coney, that's my fault. You said, I, I've got this guy. I should have just taken you at your word, this guy. And uh, got somebody else in for the next guy. But uh, we won the game. It didn't really. <laughs> Remember it well. Yes, I do. That sound, that sound off of Tommy's bat still rings in my ear like late at night when I have nightmares. <laughs> oh, man. Awesome. Awesome stuff. Joe, thank you so much again. And uh, happy holidays to you. Happy Thanksgiving coming up. And uh, we'll, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks again. I say stay healthy and safe, guys. All right. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Joe. All right. Thank you. David, did you ever actually replace the picture frame in Joe's office or, or did you just have the Kakuzas take care of it for you? Oh, you can bet I had it fixed without a doubt. I was, I was so embarrassed after that. Um, you know, heat of the moment, you get angry, you snap, you fire something across the room and then you, you end up you're doing damage to a photo. And I looked at the photo on the wall. I'm like, oh my <laughs> God, I got to get the, get it out of here. I don't want him to see it. You, know, you look at all can... the all the photos. That's Mickey Mantle wearing number <laughs> yeah. six. That photo, come on. No, you know it had some value. You know it had some significant value to it. Uh, so yeah, I was panicking at that point, trying to get it out, get another picture on the wall so we could fool him for a little while until I had time to fix the picture. So yes, uh, thanks to the, the great clubhouse staff for the Yankees have been there forever. Rob Kakuza and Luke Kakuza, the Kakuza family are just remarkable in what they do, the best of the business. And, Yes, they, they got it done for me. We found somebody who could fix that frame and 
and got it back to him. But in the meantime, yeah, I had some explaining to do. It sounds like you guys convinced yourselves that if you switched out the photo, he was not going to notice. Like, how are you not going to notice that piece of artwork's not hanging there? (laughs) Right. I'm just trying to buy time. You're not thinking clearly in the heat of the battle. You're not thinking clearly at all by doing that in the first place. And in the aftermath, yeah, absolutely. Some stupid thoughts go through your mind about maybe, yeah, he's not going to notice that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He noticed. Awesome. All right, guys. Great week here. Cy Young Awards coming up on Wednesday. We'll be back to talk about it next week for sure. Maybe we'll have a little bonus material as well in between now and then. We'll have to come back and figure it out, guys. Again, new episodes every Tuesday. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to everything we're doing here on Toe in the Slab. Thanks again. A big thank you to Joe Torrey for coming on with us here today. And thanks to our awesome producer, Dan Work, as always. Tone the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn, is a production of John Boy Media. We'll talk to you next week, everybody. Take care.